Mutants. Since the discovery of their existence, they have been regarded with fear, suspicion, often hatred. Across the planet, debate rages. Are mutants the next link in the evolutionary chain, or simply a new species of humanity fighting for their share of the world? Either way, it is an historical fact. Sharing the world has never been humanity's defining attribute. Suffering Steve Ditko! What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. <laughs> Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. And today we're continuing the Wet Hot Mutant Summer with another one of my picks. Uh, in this case, the New Mutant Summer Special, um, specifically from 1990. This is the one where you've got Sunspot, Wolfsbane, Warlock, and Boom Boom at the center of the cover with just a bunch of weird orange and pink shit going on all around them. <laughs> yeah, like just judging off of the cover without reading it, it would be like, what the fuck is this? This is, you know, I, I actually didn't look this up. This is another one that has to take place in like a really narrow space of time. My two picks so far for Wet Hot Mutant Summer have been like very odd moments in X-Men history. I mean, this is New Mutants and... Danny isn't here. Cannonball isn't here. Like, this is maybe... This might be post-Cable showing up, maybe? I don't know. I can't remember what, what got Sam to leave for a bit, or when that happened exactly. So it's a very strange little moment, again. Yeah, like, it's just the aforementioned quartet and reading it i didn't know if it was a case of like oh these are just the characters that happen to be in this annual or if it's like you said like a hyper specific moment of like everyone else is specifically written out doing different things it's a quite an odd little grouping well this is the last year of the new mutants because the title will become x-force in 91 this is a very like strange time. Like I, Danny will have left at the end of the um, Simonson Asgard stuff. That's far too long and and not especially good, unfortunately, considering how good the New Mutants and Asgard normally is. And then there's like this brief little bit, and then Cable shows up, and I think this is in that little bit. And everyone still like is drawn and reads like kids like actual like 16 year olds or something before x-force happens and boom boom's gonna look like she aged 20 years and that <laughs> certainly with liefeld drawing her but i think that's because of well a large part due to the creative team we've got on this because we got brett blevins as the artist doing i guess both pencils and inks on this and uh he drawn mutants for a while under simonson including all the way through their inferno stuff which i think looks great and i think he's a really cool pick for this story talking of the story this one's written by Anne nascenti who we have somehow not covered any of her books on the podcast yet which feels like a bit of a shame that we haven't gotten around to it yet we keep talking about doing her daredevil and then there's just never like the right moment it's just one of those things where there's so many things to potentially pick and talk about, but we've not been doing the show a particularly long time in the scheme of things. So there's still a lot of famous people or stories to still touch on. Uh, especially like ones that we're big, big fans of. I mean, we still haven't touched Ultimate Spider-Man, which is arguably my favorite comic book series. So... And was, like, gonna be among the first episodes we were ever gonna do before just, you know, 
changing of minds and what we were in the mood to do. Yeah. To finish off the creative team, we have Bill Oakley uh, doing the lettering and Greg Wright on colors. Um, this is, yeah, just it, a, like a weird annual thing in 1990 with just this lineup of four. So if you don't know the New Mutants, because I guess people don't know the New Mutants as well. Um, so you've got Sunspot, uh, Roberto da Costa. Uh, he's a Brazilian rich guy who can use his power to, like, become strong at this point. And it looks really cool because he goes, like, into a black silhouette with glowing white eyes and, like, sort of glowing Kirby crackle around him. Rain Sinclair's Wolfsbane, she's a Scottish werewolf who was raised in an incredibly repressive, like, uh, Calvinist upbringing. And uh, whose whole deal is that she's a lesbian, except corporate doesn't let her be a lesbian. Yes. Yes. And this is this is back this is the last gasp of Spain before she becomes ruined as a character up until um twenty nineteen, pretty much. Like the next thing that happens to Wolf Spain is is Peter David starts writing her. Yeah. This might be the last good rain story. Uh Tabitha Smith, who's boom boom, um, teen runaway who can create time bombs that are like little bombs that she just sort of drops and they explode and then warlock who was a techno-organic alien shape-shifting thing an excuse for the artist to do whatever they want and sort of defy physics i uh, yeah I-, I love in um whenever uh art adams draws warlock and he does all of the references, like Warlock will just turn into the Starship Enterprise for a couple panels. Just like this incredibly flexible character. And really the only requirement is he kind of has to look a little bit out of place and weird. Yeah, like different stylistically. I will also note in terms of like this specific period of the characters, this is also before... Marvel creators forgot that Sunspot was dark-skinned. Because if you put these pages up against anything from, say, like, 2015, you go, oh, Jesus fucking Christ. Because there's a good 20 years where the coloration was so wrong. Someone fucked up once, and then that became the reference image for the character for the next, like, decade. Like, it's only really recently that they've managed to fix that pretty consistently. And even then, they still occasionally have problems with a bunch of different characters. Yeah. But, yeah, you look at any of the older stuff of Sunspot, it's like, oh, no. I mean, he is, like, biracial, but his skin is very dark. Yeah. And if you weren't listening to us describe these characters to you, and you're just getting the way the comic does it... The way that the special opens is with a little splash page that says Marvel Entertainment presents the new mutant summer special featuring the talents of and then it's four separate little TV screens just introducing this little quartet that we just laid out. So it right off the bat is just like conveying that there's going to be a TV themed going on in this whole issue. The totally excellent televideo adventure begins on the very next page. The next page, which is immediately much less silly because we get this gorgeous splash page of like a boy and his dog in the foreground and they're sort of looking across this town and the image is rendered entirely in white black and blue lots of nice blue accenting which in my opinion sort of makes it like much more visually interesting than if the image was just rendered in grayscale but anyway they're watching this destruction of a tornado blowing through specifically one side of the street in a town. And we get these 
narration captions that are basically all about pondering why does the tornado attack one side and leave the other side untouched? And I'll quote the last caption. That's life, kid. Unfair and paradoxical. So we sort of go from the, here's our kooky cast of characters, to, oh, this is a serious book, actually. Kind of. It is, and then it won't be, and then it is. Yeah. Because Um, it's about TV, and it's zany, and it's satire, but also it's satirizing extremely upsetting reality, so... Yeah, essentially it's about the effects of television on reality and on the way that you can, like, you people perceive reality. Uh, As we see when we turn the page and the channel has essentially changed to... We see more, these images are now within squares on the panel. So these are clearly TV screens that are being watched. Uh, And the panel, the first one is like some firefighters in some rubble. And then the second one is someone being shot at from a helicopter in like a burnt, sort of ruined, built up city area. Uh, And the panels go on to explain that this is the news showing out you know, seconds and sound bites and blips of news about the tornado story and showing up death certificates and then firemen putting out a terrorist bomb, more high-intensity images, more death stats. Never mind that the television itself is what gave the terrorists the power to hold the world hostage. No, never mind that. Just move on to the drug war. More infernos and death and military hardware to the rescue. Uh, it's, it's safe to say that Anne Nascenti is not a subtle writer, but the great thing about that is she's right, so, like, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, because, like, it's all very blunt, but the thing is that it's not lacking in craft, you know? Like, when people complain about a work sort of like hitting them over the head with its themes or like executing clunkily, you know, that's a matter of like craft and finesse, you know, like subtlety isn't a requirement to handle the subject matter well. And this is not remotely subtle, but that's to its strength, you know, especially in terms of like, I will any day take something like this over something that like feels too afraid or editorially constrained to jump into really explicit depictions and like the narration is just seething and right after the part that you quoted i'll go ahead and quote no mention of the possibility that the drug war is a thinly veiled way to justify american military occupation in latin america But that's TV. Time to move on to the next image. No time to think. That's the beauty of the information revolution. Information is revolutionized into slip-second images, moving faster than a rock video. So much information, it all turns into the same muddy, dizzy blur. And it, like, keeps going as, you know, the disembodied, scathing narrator is captioning the scenes over top of more images of, like, a soldier over human bones and a starving child and all these sorts of images. And Anna Sinti swings, you know? Like, she goes for it. And I very much respect that in an artist. Politics is boring, you say? Okay, no more politics in the news. Yay, consumer-dictated news. (laughs) (laughs) and the thing is it does such a good job delivering all of this in really quick succession because all of the stuff that we just described this like narrator talking over the events that are happening all this takes place within three pages which like i cannot imagine a comic book today doing this in such a condensed form but it's not condensed in a way that feels rushed or 
you know, sort of awkward in the flow, which is, I suppose, a mixture of both Nascenti and Blevins' skill in terms of just like how pages are constructed in terms of the panel layouts, even the way that Bill Oakley opts to place the caption boxes on yeah, the I page. Yeah, I think Oakley's work is a big part of why this works. Yeah, as it sort of like shifts diagonally and sort of moves around in the way that naturally leads the eye along and never looks too cluttered. It's very good. And watching the television is Rain Sinclair, who is moved to tears by all of the horrible things happening in the world that are just being streamed directly to the TV screen and cut between so quickly. Yeah. And as she's sobbing there, we quickly get uh, Tabitha, boom, boom, walking into the room, asking her what's wrong. And their exchange is essentially a matter of Tabitha not really taking it seriously. Wolfsbane is reflecting on the fact that they live in Professor X's mansion and they're so comfortable. And she's like, we should give so much money away. Like, why do we have all this? And they don't. And Boom Boom says, what for? We're rich. Bourgeois. Yuppie mutants. Living on the endless plastic of credit cards. Somebody's gotta do it. Just showing that, like, <laughs> Boom Boom has fully bought into that concept you know, just takes it as a given that somebody's got to do it and doesn't really take the moral quandary particularly seriously and sort of highlighting the fact that she's not fully paying attention to what Wolfsbane is saying. We also get the sequence of a fly buzzing around the room that Tabitha deals with by using her powers to explode. Like, while delivering the speech... In fairness to Boom Boom, at this point in time, I think they were living in the underneath the exploded remains of the Xavier Mansion. Okay. Like, Mr. Sinister blows it up at the end of Inferno. It doesn't get rebuilt until after, oh, until um, after the Muir Island saga and Xavier's back. And they're in, like, the underground bunker underneath it. Um, in that like really weird period where like the X-Men and what will soon become X-Force are both like living down there well, and, and X-Factor a bit as well like yeah plus she's a kid so you know we can yeah. extend a lot of grace to none of and these when... children really you know having an adult's conception of economics when you first meet Boom Boom as well, she is a runaway living on the street. Like, she's been there, done that. And, like, X Factor finding her in the Louise Simonson run. And, oh, actually, meeting the Beyonder in Secret Wars 2 <laughs> is how she gets off at the streets herself. So she's relatively freshly escaped from a life not too dissimilar to some of the things that Rain is watching. But essentially... Wolfsbane picks up on the fact that Boom Boom doesn't really sympathize with her own sympathies and she just sort of like tearfully morphs into her wolf form and runs away and Boom Boom has a moment of being like what did I do before immediately blaming the TV and punching <laughs> the TV or rather blowing it, it up. <laughs> it's boom boom. Anytime anything's remotely frustrating, just blow it up. Literally just blow it up. Rain in dog form runs out to Yeah, the underground complex. Yeah, this is the this is the the backyard of the Xavier Mansion where it used to be. Uh and she goes to drink from a river because when she's in like her dog form, she has most of those instincts and immediately spits it out. Because the water is polluted. I will note here, and this extends not just to this scene, but to later ones in this locale later, 
that Blevins does a really lovely job of rendering nature and like the river and the forest foliage all around it. And it's just nice and lovely to look at. Like there's a nice amount of texture. The rendering of like shadow across the grass is really nice. Sort of like ripples of light across the water. Density of leaves. It's all just really lovely in a way that both A, is just nice to look at here on its own, but also B, is a nice contrast of a more sort of natural aesthetic to sort of play against the more alternate dimension wacky shit that we're going to see later to sort of like heighten the difference between those two sorts of aesthetics and locales. Yeah, it's it's really, really well done, especially when it comes to the contrast between the two sort of main locations of the rest of the comic. So Rain tells Boom Boom about the lake, and they both briefly... Uh, well, Rain is upset because they can't even fight pollution, despite the fact that they are you know powerful mutants and save the world all the time. And Boom Boom reminds her that they're just kids, and neurotic misfit weirdo outsiders at that. Let's go do something really politically important like shopping. <laughs> and like on that topic, you know, covering more quote unquote realistic problems in a superhero book can be tricky, you know, for various reasons. But I think, and maybe this is getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I think that the way that this comic handles it is quite effective partially due to, like, the questions it's raising and partially due to the context of just, like, you know, this isn't the sort of book where it's like, why doesn't Superman stop school shootings? You know, it raises the issue of just, like, you know, media corruption, TV, political, governmental, corporate all sort of just gooping together on a media landscape, all that sort of shit. And then just sort of the injustices that that raises and reflects that Wolf Spain is feeling sad about. But I think because it all sort of frames it with like these younger protagonists of like, you know, these are kids, these are like 15 year olds. And they don't have an easy way to fix this. It sort of allows Nascenti to do all this commentary in a way that doesn't feel cheap, you know? Like, it doesn't have to hand wave something away of, like, you know, we're not getting Superman explaining, well, actually, I can't fix the desert because blah, blah, blah. Like, this all actually feels like it makes sense in-universe. Iceman can't solve climate change. Yeah. Um, it does that, but it also, I think, shows that these younger characters are able to navigate this world in a way that, like, certain of, like, older characters maybe couldn't. Um, I mean, like, the, the subplot that's sort of about to start with the kids who sit in the river, which, uh, the other thing that's sort of happening on this page is they are currently being watched, um, by a group of children who say they're going to clean up the river, and they have an idea on how to do it. But I think a part of the point of the story and a part of what Nascenti and Blevins are doing here is showing that these, that like people who grow up in this new media landscape are going to be able to navigate it and manipulate it better in order to use it in positive ways. Like it doesn't have to be all negative. There are things you can do. Uh, speaking of someone who's growing up with TV, on the next page we get this incredible full page of warlock who currently has uh i would say about 30 eyes all of which are tv screens and also all of his teeth are tv screens and he's using them to watch it, it's fully it's an ozymandias television wall is what it is but it's his head yes well and then he's also watching an ozymandias television wall yeah, we get like that splash page of just like showing all the monitors for eyes and teeth. And then we turn the page and we see that there's also the physical wall around him in this room. 
and we get the sense that Warlock is attempting to watch like literally every single TV channel that he has access to because he's so addicted. And the narration tells us Warlock's heard all about the risks and dangers of watching too much TV. Does he care? Nope. And there's like lots of cute little visuals that like do a good job of depicting, you know, just all the different sort of shit you would see on TV. We see real literally people. the Simpsons. Yeah. The best part is the Marge Simpson in the upper left. Pink skin Marge is cursed. Yeah. Yeah. There's pink skinned Marge in the upper left. And then we get like some more cartoons, but then we get like more realistic looking people and then we get some, like, Animal Planet. There's just, like, a nice cross-section of TV. Yellow Submarine is on on two different TVs, and they're, like, running at different times. Yeah. And as Warlock is watching all this, he suddenly picks up another incoming signal, and he sort of, like, extends his tendril up above him through the different floors of the compound to try and get like a better frequency, better signal to pick up the wavelength that he feels coming in. And it's a very fun page. I love a cross section. Yeah, because it does like the cross section of showing his little antenna thing going up through each individual floor of the bunker which includes slicing through Sunspot's bed as he's trying to sleep. So Sunspot is naturally pissed. He's in his outfit. I don't know what he's doing. He's just lying on his bed in his full superhero outfit for some reason. Yeah. And he's just like cursing Warlock as the antenna we see in the next panel extends not just through the rest of the compound, but has become the longest structure ever seen because it has reached beyond the atmosphere of the Earth into outer space as he's, like, trying to talk to the signal and is just like, would you like to transmit? I'll take you to my television. Greetings, alien frequency. Earth TV welcomes you. And he literally, like, physically catches a signal. I love Warlock. There's no other character you could do this with. Yeah. This is the good Marvel Comics Warlock. I don't like the other Marvel Comics Warlock. It's weird that there's two of them. And essentially what happens from here is, like, Warlock extends his body back down to the bunker, and Sunspot, Boom Boom, and Wolfsbane all make their way to him, having seen and or heard the commotion of him breaking the building apart. And basically, he's captured a little TV guy. Yeah, like they let the signal loose. A little TV man pops out, by which we mean like just a short little dude, cartoony little character with an actual TV monitor for a head and sort of like antenna hair. He's very susy and it's like um, if Thing One had a television head. That's a good comparison. Yeah, it is very, like, Dr. Seuss feeling. And... Like, the way Blevins draws him and the way he moves and stuff, that's what it reminds me of. Yeah. And the character introduces himself. He says, I'm a vidiot journalist from a nearby dimension. They booted me out because I wanted to write a story that the big corporate Mega Larpoli didn't like. I come seeking help, military aid, intelligence aid, freedom fighters, whatever. And the New Mutants just sort of argue about if they're going to help him. And it's basically Rain who like definitively says, yes, we're going to. Because in this story, she's like the most empathetic, innocent one. I would, that's very consistent with her characterization up until Peter David getting his hands on her. Like, she's, sometimes her, like, upbringing gets the better of her, but, like, the whole point of the character is she's supposed to be breaking through that. So she has a lot of moments of, like, being very harsh on herself or the other mutants 
because of the prejudice that's like been programmed into her, and then her pushing against it is sort of the main story of the character. Um, of course, Boom Boom manages to make all this happen by throwing a time bomb without thinking what she's doing, and they all get sucked into. I'm just gonna call it a weirdness vortex. Yeah, it does the sort of cartoony thing of like characters are being transported across dimensions and their anatomy is twisting and turning as like the laws of physics sort of disappear. So we just get like all these extended limbs and bodies just moving in ways they're not supposed to move. And they head down into a media fallout. So the oligarchy megalump monopolies are having a media war, and this is the polluting static of advertising fallout, which is just a bunch of random things falling from the sky and crashing into Earth, including now the New Mutants and uh, the video journalist character. Yeah, and I'll go ahead and read some quotes to sort of give a sense of how it establishes this new setting, we get the vidiot saying, Welcome to Megalopolis, a free country where everyone's free to be selfish. And the New Mutants just sort of remark that everyone they're seeing looks zoned out. And then the vidiot says, Depressed, chronic, contagious, widespread manic depression plagues this land. The gluttony of owning too much oversaturation of media, consumer heaven in general is a breeding ground for vidiots like myself. Do we think that Anne Nascenti might have had ideas that she wanted to convey here? A little moral maybe, message? Maybe just a little. Uh, my favorite is the bottle or the can of diet choke that is floating by. Diet choke. The pun on that is just really good. Yeah, and no sooner do they get there than they start just getting bombarded with all these sort of riffs on television and advertisements, the first of which is just like this blonde woman done up with like her makeup and everything in this low-cut dress with the words by me written across her breasts who then starts trying to, like, beautify Rain, just, like, immediately, like, whipping out lipstick and sort of making her look like a clown and popping a wig on her head. And then in the mirror, though, to Rain, she looks like the lady does with the blonde hair and the bright red lipstick that isn't all messed up. And, um, I mean, a big part of this character from the beginning has always been that she's got, like, Let's just say issues with the fact that she doesn't look the way that she feels that she does as a woman. That she feels that she should as a woman. Like her hair can't grow out and she wants to be like a, a little princess girl, but she's not because she's a werewolf with wolf hair instead of like human hair and stuff like that. Uh, and so this sort of cuts right to the heart of the character and is exactly the thing that would make her just completely lose sight of what's going on as she runs away following the stretch limousine that this makeup lady siren thing is and a television appears out of nowhere and blocks all the other characters from following her uh meanwhile we cut back to the polluted uh river outside of the ruins of the xavier mansion where a group of kids uh, the kids from earlier have decided that the solution to the problem of the polluted river is for them to sit in it and refuse to move in order to make a spectacle out of the river and the problem to get attention from the media. Uh, a really interesting thing that's done with the colors here is at this point in the comic, all of the kids are done only in tones of black or white. Like there's some half toning done. Um, to create a grayscale, but it is specifically half-toning and not actually using the colors at all. And that's in, like, a stark contrast to what's happening with the environment. I honestly can't quite figure out what it's 
saying or what they're doing with this, but it looks really neat. Yeah, like the contrast is just really stark between these children who are by and large like more removed from the zany main conflict and everything, but are sort of engaging with the theme of like media and news on a more grounded level with one of the kids who seems more or less like a leader for them just talking about how his dad told him that news works and how to get attention to something you need to make a spectacle out of it and their idea is that they're just going to sit in the river and not budge until someone fixes it and Blevins adopts a slightly different style for penciling these characters as well compared to the New Mutants. I mean, they're all about the same age of like these teen characters, but these characters are a lot less exaggerated in some of their proportions and especially in their gestures and the way that they move and their expressions. Like that's yeah. clearly a very conscious choice. Um, you know what the the half toning might actually be thinking about it? In 1990, a lot of newspapers probably still just used halftones and stuff for their um, printing. Yeah, and, like, even though color TV existed, like, a lot of, like, newspaper printing images and stuff, like, wouldn't have been as, like, holy in color like they are now. Yeah, like, certainly the stuff past the front page was probably much more likely to be in black and white in 1990, I would assume. Yeah. That's like the first thing that comes to mind there. Um, but certainly it's it's a really, like, it's a very visually striking choice that I really like. Yeah. Uh, so the kids are a little worried that sitting in the river is going to cause some health problems. Uh, but they decide to actually use that possibility to their advantage and pull out a green marker and start drawing dots all over themselves. Yeah, they sort of start like joking about if the pollution is going to make them mutate uh, meanwhile back in um the weird tv dimension uh the remaining new mutants and the video journalists so everyone but rain come out the back of a different television and suddenly all of them look like flat stanley for a second until the video journalist like uses a remote to fix them all just wacky stuff happening yeah and they're in a location it looks kind of like a very weird junkyard just sort of like all of the remnants of like what did they call them media fallouts of just like all the disparate objects and all that sort of thing all just sort of like haphazardly strewn about in a way that's kind of giving like pollution littering like it's again sort of like a man-made fucked up looking environment yeah um and this is the story that the journalist was trying to get published that you know is the reason why he got booted up his dimension in the first place at which point they hide because approaching is well the media kingpin Rupert Rudock <laughs> very subtle which a, a name which made me laugh for several minutes when I first heard it because I, you know, it, we were we were already breaking the bounds of subtlety here, and Mupert Rodok is just oh it's great, um and he's there with a creature made up of uh, this guy probably looks like he's got an antenna and then a sort of round television screen for a face. Like he's, he's another TV guy and he's in a big suit and he's with a creature called the MC, which it looks sort of like a jumble of television cameras and cables and antenna. Uh, the MC stands for manufacture of consent. And it's all the media stations getting together on the safest opinion to broadcast. Not subtle. Uh, not, not subtle at all. Very direct Noam Chomsky reference. And we get Mupert Rurdock on a phone call. And I'll quote some of it. This is a very disturbing fact. A media spill is a very inconvenient fact. What can we do? 
and then on the phone, manufacture a villain? Fine, but who? The government? No, they sign my paycheck. The media? No, I am the media. The corporations? No, they'll pull out their advertising and we'll go bankrupt. Just very blatant government, media, corporation, the like interconnectedness of it all is very well conveyed here in like a funny way. We'll stagecraft an alternate event. Yes, hurry up and call rent a president. <laughs> rent a president. Wherein Which immediately shows up with what initially looks like an ordinary man, but then a bunch of little TV people are told to starch his hair, pancake his face, pump up his chest, and suck up that gut, resulting in it's George H.W. Bush. Yeah, because it was Bush Sr.'s presidency, and then, like, the look is giving sort of that era political cartoons of, like, the features that they're exaggerating in his face, and he just... You're right, because the hair, yep, I was looking at the hair, but the hair's different from what I'm used to seeing Bush Sr. with, because I, um, yeah. It's because that man is aged so horribly... But it's giving, (laughs) like, contemporary to his presidency, H.W. Bush. And it's basically, like, press-op, like, media narrative control. Like, okay, we're gonna have the president kiss a baby, throw a football, do all these things, and... He kisses the ball and throws the baby. (laughs) Yeah, like, rent-a-president fucks the entire thing up like is mixing and matching the wrong things throwing the baby kissing the football there's a few more little things like that he's just like sort of throwing out catchphrases saying a kinder gentler world a zillion points of light which that again is also a specific hw bush speech reference and then just like more sound bites him screaming national security, education, and just a bunch of shit like that. And he's fucking it up. It's obviously incoherent and a mess. But Mooper Wordock is not concerned at all and specifically says, not bad, not bad. A few goofs, but who'll notice? The media dog laps it all up as usual, which is the most scathing and... Not at all, really, an exaggeration, just criticism of the way that media will just unquestioningly gobble up whatever dumbass, like, official state narrative and just perpetuate it, even after watching the president hurl the baby like a football. And every single eyeball on the cameras of the MC is just staring directly at this renter president thing that is here yeah and so we cut back to um the kids in the river where basically you know they're they're getting bored and they're worrying about whether it's going to work um when an old man he's like walking his dog sees them um and you know wants to is concerned about them and it's like do your parents know where you are and stuff like that uh, so clearly it's about to start working as word is going to start spreading of what they're doing. Yeah. And it's just a brief interlude before we go back to the TV dimension where the satire then sort of moves to imperialism as broadcasted by TV because we essentially have a setting where... Up in the sky, there's, like, this two-headed creature that's, like, fighting itself. And it's sort of, like, split personality of, like, Uncle Sam versus just... It's kind a bear. Of, Yeah. And kind of more, like, just the idea of an opponent more so than just communism specifically... Because, like, as they're arguing, there is just, like, reference to, like, communism not being a quote-unquote threat anymore. 
you know, this is sort of like that turning point of history of like the Cold War coming to an end and all that. But it's basically just like this battle up in the sky, the shooting rockets down upon just like this region of the lesser fortunate whose homes are literally getting bombed. It's literally called the Third World. Yes, yeah. And it's stated that they would... They're used to this way of life. If the shooting ever stopped, they think it was weird. Just... Wow. (laughs) Continues to be very subtle. Yeah, yeah. Meanwhile, back on Earth, uh, news crews and police show up to the river and basically just the news lady is interviewing the kids about what they're doing. And the leader said, kids should have clean rivers to swim in. We're not going to eat or sleep or budge till this river is cleaned up. And so they've sort of reached the using TV as a distributor of their protest sort of phase of their plan before we then cut right back to the new mutants arriving at Megalopolis, which they say looks like a corporation or a factory or a missile warehouse. Maybe it's all free. And they're trying to decide whether they should actually go in and, you know, destroy the place or not. Uh, when up comes a character called Situation Ethics, who just starts debating them on, like, whether or not they they should do anything at all about the situation because, you know, violence can be wrong. And the new mutants basically look at each other and are just like, uh, nah, let's do it. And so all fly off in Warlock in the shape of a fighter plane. Yeah, like, it's all very specifically just like, here's the dude who's like scolding you about ethics. And it's like, think about this. Think about the implications. But it's just like doing that as a means of like upholding complacency and avoiding things getting any better. It's that sort of like, it gives very like Washington Post editorial shit. (laughs) Yeah, he's wearing, well, uh, so... Initially, when you see him, his stomach, where um, one half of his white, one half is black, and the white says yes in black, and the black says no in white. Uh, and then the next time you see him, it's it instead of that, it says don't do, as in don't do anything. Yeah, presumably, is the point of this. And he specifically towards the end tries to like you know placate them and pretend like he has any interesting moral argument to make by going on the sort of like vegetarianism arguments and he's just like some say meat is murder ethics depends how you look at it from a cow's point of view meat is murder from a hot dog man's pov meat is life and it's just sort of this moment of him being like, even if you don't eat meat, you have lover in your shoes. Isn't that hypocrisy? How does one figure out if one should eat the cow? We get these two panels of Boom Boom, Warlock, and Sunspot with Boom Boom asking, should we eat the cow? And they all just have wide grin smiles and exclaim, yes. And then they go fly off on like plain form Warlock. Because meat is delicious. These are the three most violence-addicted New Mutants characters as well. Like, these are the three where I'm like, these are the three that would charge in without really thinking about it. Yeah, because Wolfsbane is very specifically not here with them. So that sort of more, like, pleading, sympathetic voice is not with the group right now. There's a reason Boom Boom did so well on X-Force. Yeah. Uh, And so... We go back to Earth where the corporation is dealing with the media fallout because the, the corporation that's been polluting the river is dealing with the media fallout. Um, and so oh, the corporation is called Magazine, just to be just 
you know, what even is this company? What do they do? You know, like clearly the point is just that it's some sort of mega corporation. Uh, and so they send their public relations guy to say, oh, we had no idea we were polluting this river. We weren't aware of the pipe leading from our printing factory to the river. We're cleaning up the river right now. Just this obvious bullshit. We weren't aware. We didn't know about this pipe that came from our factory to this river. What? We didn't build it. How should we know? How did that happen? And meanwhile, back in the world of the TV dimension, the sort of like two-headed American bear creature sort of like falls to the ground as a result of its earlier fight and all of the residents of the quote-unquote third world all just sort of like walk up and surround it and realize that it's the creature that has been like bombing them and raining havoc on them all this time and one of them goes it is only one and we are many again not subtle and just this whole thing of them identifying the threat for what it is and then the uncle sam monster literally shrinks as in power and influence as they all go running after it and then uh the new mutants arrive at this massive building with a bunch of dollar signs outside of it and when they go in um, which it's being compared a lot to a church, like they're seeing it and they're like, oh, this feels like a church, like a place of worship. And they walk in and there is just the most amazing splash page of the inside of this building where you have, it's a huge room with a whole bunch of these weird TV antenna people sitting there um, in front of an altar where, I mean, the focal point of the altar is a big old christian cross overlaid on a dollar sign with wings behind it and then uh beneath it a big like coin that says in greed we trust perfect no notes no notes whatsoever uh also of note a bunch of tv people here are wearing hawaiian shirts with names of different countries on them like uh well different places on them more accurately like salvador warsaw berlin and one that starts with af but is cut off by the end of the page and like i mean this will be the berlin wall stuff i assume i honestly should have googled more of what exactly was happening in the headlines when this got written this feels like a bit i need to research a bit more because i cannot remember dates to save my life a quick google for when did the berlin wall fall is giving me November 9th, 1989. So less than a year before this would have come out. Or let's see, the maybe Salvador... that's when destruction began. Point being, it's this period of time when all this is going on. The Salvadorian Civil War was coming to an end at this point in time. Yeah. So that's two. Yeah. Just so there all you go. The stuff big... going on. The big international headlines are all here. And all of this is happening because of, oh, look at this. I love the roping in of the religious aspect, too, of just like Anne Nascenti and Brett Blevins being like, we got the news, we got the government, we got companies, shit, we got to hit the mega churches, too. We can't finish this issue without making sure we hit on that, too. Using people's religion for greed is, yeah, very specifically, I think, what they're criticizing here. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not like a just like, oh, Christianity bad thing. Like, it's very specifically that sort of like mega it's the TV church. evangelists, which were huge at this point. In fact, it's sorry, it's, it's specifically called the Megalopolis Power Center. Uh, so the New Mutants decide that the best solution is just to punch everything. Yeah, because... And, and stop beating up the altar. Yeah, because unlike what... Mr. Situation Ethics would have said earlier, sometimes, in fact, the answer is to do, and specifically do violence. And also, as I said, these are the three most impulsive characters in certainly the New Mutants, possibly the entire X-Men line. <laughs> Boom Boom certainly is up there. Yeah. And meanwhile, back on Earth, 
we essentially cut to the results of the kids' protest with, like, some very fast done science, you know, for purpose of just finishing this story out. But just, like, a dude using, like, Bunsen burners and um, analyzing, like, the contents of the water and the river and declaring that it's getting cleaner and... The newswoman asked the kids, You as children have held a huge corporation hostage by staging this event. It's a form of guerrilla warfare, of TV terrorism. How do you feel about that? And the child is smiling and says, Great. TV is a powerful medium. It's time the people got access to it, to its power, and use it to help the world. Especially because we're kids. Kids aren't political enough, but that's going to change. We're taking part in things that bug us. And watch out, because next we're going to demand the right to vote. And then they all just sort of exclaim in victory. And this is also the point where they shift to being in color. Yeah. Um, Like, this is, I feel, the core of the actual story and what's being done here. It's These are awful things, and like these are problems that already existed but are exacerbated by a modern media landscape but also you can navigate what exists here and find a way to use these things like television isn't inherently a bad thing and that's not what this comic is saying i wouldn't like it if it was to be honest because those stories always just feel very finger waggy and dumb this is a much more intelligently considered book yeah it might just be the i guess just like current versus then of it all where you know to a certain extent me in 2023 is kind of like the whole oh we actually successfully use tv to pressure a company to acting better i'm kind of like how often do you actually see that happen you know which is maybe just my cynicism but i think you're right that it is core to the sort of layer of what Nascenti and Blevins are doing with just like at least the concept of trying to twist media usage in a way that's less inherently corrosive. And I'd say that this isn't necessarily literal. I mean, like nowadays you could apply a lot of what this comic is talking about to things like social media. And while obviously there's huge, massive world-changing problems that have come from that, but again, just exacerbate these already existing issues of imperialism and etc um but what you also get is like people forming online communities that help them or like there's ways that these things can be used that are good that can be used well like the medium isn't the problem yeah and like the community aspects is pivotal too because like It's specifically not like a one child protest. It is like this whole entire group. And then there is also like the whole group of the new mutants on the other side of events too. It's never like a solitary figure changing the world all on their own. Yes, exactly. Speaking of the mutants, we cut to Rain, who is all made up in like the -the over-the-top clown makeup, sitting across from... It's one of the TV antenna people with a face that's been, like, attached like a mask to the front. I This is just, in the setup in what looks like um, a dining room with, well, it's a TV on the wall that is showing them in this dining room with a TV on the wall, like, a, a infinite sort of line of televisions behind them. And then when we get the next panel we see further out, we see that they're just sitting inside, like, the wasteland sort of garbage area and basically uh rain who bought into the consumerism from earlier feels completely empty even though everything is supposed to be perfect and very swiftly like when she sees on the television that the new mutants have been attacking the the palace and the altar in the city uh she realizes like she comes back to herself basically and leaves turning into her wolf form, which 
It's a dog. Everyone has only ever managed to make it look like a dog. She never looks like a wolf to me. I think this version is better than some others I've seen. But yeah, a lot of the time it's just sort of a dog. Yeah. I mean, that's a really hard to do distinction, I guess. It, it doesn't help that you have to color her in red. Yeah. Um. But yes, uh, rain beats consumerism. Yeah, she... It's the easiest way to sum up the weirdness that happens on these couple pages. Yeah, she rejects the, like, consumer-fed, TV-fed idea of perfect family happiness and leaves her wig behind and leaves her heterosexual assigned lover behind to dog up and go track down the others who are in the middle of a battle with how would you describe these things um okay so they're dudes in what essentially looks like sort of your standard like it kind of looks like what a general would wear with like the the sort of fluffy thing on the side of the shoulder pads i don't know the name for and like that sort of level of of bling on the suit um they have these hats that look vaguely like a world war one german helmet especially with like the pointy antenna thing coming out the top of it uh but it's patterned with um stripes and a star that's very clearly evoking america and then their faces are weird black and white scribbles with sort of pointy tooth shapes and black like deep maws as they're shouting and attacking the new mutants. So then before they actually start fighting, the little situation ethics man pops up again. And I really love this bit where he starts, you know, you have to consider the consequences of violence. And Sunspot just says that sometimes peaceful resistance is the only way, and that's fine and good. But sometimes, chum, you just gotta fight. And we have a couple really fun splash pages of everyone fighting. The whole thing turns out to be a little bit Wizard of Oz because there's a very, like, another one of the TV people who's wearing a crown who's actually, like, running everything. And once they knock him on his ass and unplug all of his machines, it turns out everything they were fighting were just, like, fake holograms. Warlock pulls on his suspenders saying, Self has always admired suspenders. What is their function? Uh, which makes his pants fall down in front of everyone, and now um, all of the TV people are laughing, which seems to break his hold over like the, the country, and all of the new mutants are suddenly sent back into the real world, popping out of a television screen. Or, well, back to the 616, or wherever. I don't... Yeah. It's, it's a weird TV place. Yeah, they get sent back home. And basically, upon getting back home and having gone through all of this shit inside the TV world, they have a moment of being like, TV is bad. We're literally going to take all the TVs out of the mansion and take them to the dump. We have them, like, carrying half a dozen TVs using... There's a lot of televisions in the mansion. Yeah, I guess if, like, maybe, say, like, everyone has a personal one in their room, there's enough of them that, like, you know. But they're using, like, Warlock is like, I don't know what you would call this construction vehicle, but a lifter, a heavy lifter. Yeah. And they're having their little TV is bad, get rid of it moral moment when they stumble back upon the river and find the children playing in it. And Rain is initially worried and is telling them to stop because it's polluted when the kids tell her it's okay, it got cleaned up. And when Boom Boom asks how, who cleaned it up, one of the children says, the TV did it, television cleaned the river. And then we just get Rain and Boom Boom and Sunspot looking at each other for a minute and then turning right back around and bringing all the TVs back to the mansion and talking about how excited they are to watch Twin Peaks. I mean, at least they're interested in good television programs. It's always Magnum P.I. or Twin Peaks with these kids. And I assume that Twin Peaks was, like, contemporary to this, right? 
like actually still going on at the time i suppose yeah like the the first season yeah I yeah i assume so um actually no i it was because um oh what's her name the x factor lady her brother is supposed to actually be the twin peaks guy carl mclaughlin um oh god damn it i can normally remember her name do they have the same last name yeah or well, she's she's the one who runs x factor for the government i i'm really annoyed that oh I can't remember her name oh right now. um valerie cooper yes valerie cooper jesus christ oh i'm normally way better <laughs> i don't know why i could not remember valerie cooper i had carter in my head i'm like well it's not carter that's that's entirely different government lady from the marvel universe and that's essentially how the issue ends there are technically at the end a couple of little like pin-up pages of just like bonus illustrations of all the characters and a little thank you note to some like political writers and such who helped yeah. inspire the issue uh noam chomsky is probably the most famous one and yeah that that's the new mutant summer special i think this was great i think this is one of the best x-men stories we've ever discussed um it's up there and we've discussed some good ones we have and i suppose i should especially give you credit because I would say the best ones were this and X-Men number four, and both of those are things that you picked. Oh, I'm Days of Future Past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get you get the crown for picking the best stories. I, meanwhile, just have us go on a survey of Iceman's publication history. Speaking of what you have us do... <laughs> next week, we will be... Embarking on part one of a demonstration of my thesis that the year 2001 was one of the best years in X-Men publication history. I can't even disagree. And we will be discussing Ultimate X-Men numbers one through six in trade form. These are the ones that come in just Ultimate X-Men volume one. It's all there in one book. Story arc is titled The Tomorrow People. It is by Mark Miller and Adam Kubert. And I think we'll have a bit of a difference of opinion of how much we like it, but I we'll don't be hate it. At least there's that. I, I think it's good. I think it could have been 18 issues, is the thing. It that's that's the thing that gets me about it. I'm just like, there's so much here. We'll talk about it next week. Yeah. For now, though, thank you for listening. Track down New Mutant Summer Special. It's on Marvel Unlimited if you have that. We rarely talk about anything that isn't. Yeah. Well worth your time. But see you next week. Bye.